Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores and deconstructs the success strategies of established horror directors while summarizing the key insights and resources that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes their creative processes, strategies for getting their films off the ground, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and so much more. Today, I am very pleased to announce that we have one of the OGs of horror on the show, Mr. Tom Holland. Tom Holland is an American screenwriter, actor, and filmmaker, and a household name for us horror fans as the writer-director of two enormously important classics, Fright Night and Child's Play. Additionally, Tom has written a number of other classics, including Cloak and Dagger and Psycho 2, and directed a number of movies, including the Stephen King adaptations of The Langoliers and Thinner. He is a living legend, a downright wonderful and hilarious person, and it was a real privilege to have this conversation with him. Now, please give it up for the man himself, Mr. Tom Holland. I feel like I'm learning more than ever now. You know, I mean, but no, I have no idea how to evaluate myself. I'm absolutely awed by the fact that anybody even wants to talk to me. But it seems like the older I get, the more people want to. Well, yeah, I think you have a lot to teach people and you have have a lot of contributions to a lot of intellectual properties that people still love to this day. I have no idea. I remember one of my mentors was Henry Farrell which is to say somebody that I, that, I, that I liked a lot and hung out with on and off. And Henry was, uh, he wrote a little, a little book called uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, mm-hmm. among others. The, and Henry said, what you do is you just keep on working and just get out as much as you can. And then someday, years later, somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you know, that was wonderful what you did back then. And you're like, well, what, what, what? It was, it was. <laughs> he was right, though. He was yeah. right. Was that the approach that you took to work? Just kind of kept going and tried to get out as much as you could? I just... Yes, but I'm self-taught. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've never had a writing course in my life. And I think it came out of starting as an actor. Mm-hmm. And what I really wanted to be was a a filmmaker, but I had absolutely no idea how to get there. I'm from a small town in mid-state New York called Highland, which is across the Hudson Bridge from uh, Poughkeepsie. Mm-hmm. And nobody in my family or anybody that I knew had any, you know, touch with with this. And so it was it was uh, groping and trying and failing and Every now and then, somebody would be very, very nice to me and mm-hmm. sort of stumbling my way along and, and growing and getting to to where I could, you know, uh, do what I wanted. I, for years, I fought getting old, you know. I mean, I, I thought because Holly was so youth-oriented, right. I, I didn't want to admit that I was getting older. And, you know, now it's sort of like, what the hell difference does it make? <laughs> the... Uh, that, you know, but when I started out trying to get into the business, there were no film schools. Right. Which is like hard for people to imagine, but it's true. 
I graduated high school, I think in 1961. And they only had uh, theater schools. And undergraduate, there were two of them, Northwestern and Carnegie Tech. And the, 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 the one that offered at least some courses that were outside of theater for a general education was Northwestern. Mm -hmm. So I chose Northwestern. I got into both and I went to Northwestern for a year. And at least I got some general education courses in English and history and things like that, humanities. Mm -hmm. And I went then, I, well, for, well for, I had started, I'd gotten through a teacher I had been able to apprentice at Bucks County Playhouse. And I started when I was 15, but it was the summer of my 16th birthday. And that was when I learned about acting and acting classes. Mm. And so what I did is that I started, I started taking the New York Central into New York and studying at what was then called the Herbert Berghoff Studios at 21 Bank Street, I still remember. And then I learned about agents and that, but there was no way of learning about how to become a director right. or for that matter, how to become a writer. And I, I really, when I was like in junior high school, I wanted to be a writer. I've wanted to write forever. And, but there was no way of writing, I didn't, you know, no way of writing films or directing or even knowing anybody could tell me anything. So I started going into acting classes because I'd learned about acting. And from there, I got an agent and, you know, and, and started doing that. And I got at the, at the summer, at the end of my freshman year at Northwestern, I was back in New York going to acting classes. I got an agent and I got a seven-year contract at Warner Brothers as an actor. And so I got in my, it was 1963. It was the same year that JFK was assassinated. And I was under contract to Warner's when that happened. And what I did was I haunted the editorial bays. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was, you know, I was trying to learn, but I didn't know how to learn. So you just hang out I in just the editing out. bays? I just hung out. Yeah. And I just wandered around with my mouth hanging open, the stars <laughs> in my eyes. They were shooting, they were shooting Robin Hood and the Seven Hoods with uh Frank Sinatra and the, and, the, and the Rat Pack. Oh, my gosh. And I would go and stand at the back, and I would watch them shoot. <laughs> so you were like and, Steven Spielberg who yeah, snuck his way yeah, out of the I, studio. Yeah, I just sort of, I, I couldn't believe I was there. I'm from mid I'm from Highland, New York. You know, I'm giving you, how'd this happen? And anyway, so I was there, and I did, I did the last season of 77 Sunset Strip in Temple, Houston, which was... Uh, Jeffrey Hunter. Okay. He's the most beautiful looking men I ever saw. And I can't remember what else I did. And I worked under the name of Tom Fielding, which was the AKA, also mm -hmm. known as, because there was another Tom Holland in the business. And there's another one now, Spider-Man. And now Man. there's another one now. <laughs> I've never been able to use it. I'm using my name because I'm there before Spider-Man. But <laughs> Tom Holland seems to be a very desirous name. It does. The so now there's me and there's then there's Tom Spider-Man Holland, but I'm the I'm the writer director. Right. And uh, so I mean so I wor I worked as an actor. Uh, I did soaps in New York. I be I really uh, 
I became a soap opera star, actually. And you studied under Strasburg, didn't well, you? Well, then I came out in the from New York out here permanently with my wife in 1967 or 8, and I was in the actor's studio. Okay. And what the actor's studio had was a division that was the new playwrights unit or whatever. And as actors, we would go and we would do one-act plays all the all in the actor's studio and because they also had a number of writers who were members okay and that's when i started to meet a lot of writers who were aspiring directors jim bridges was 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 the name that sticks with me mm-hmm. the uh and that was the beginning of uh this is the 1969 70 71 was the beginning of Hollywood opening up to original scripts. And that was because of the dumbfounding success of Easy Rider. All right. Because the studios had lost their way as to trying to figure out what would sell then to the youth generation. I feel like we're and getting Easy there. Easy Rider dumbfounded everybody because it broke every rule. Right. But it opened the door for what was what would have been then the boomer generation. It was such an exciting time in cinema. It was. It was indeed. And that opened it up to Spielberg and Scorsese and, you know, De Palma and on mm-hmm. and on and on. That was that was the seventies. But what it did was I figured out I saw people writing original scripts and breaking into directing. And so since I'd always wanted to write anyway. I started writing original scripts around 71 or so. And I taught myself how to write. And then I got good enough that I, I started to get produced. The first credit was The Initiation of Sarah, which was a TV movie in 1977, which has been remade three times. Oh, wow. And that was the beginning of it. And for whatever reason... I don't know how, but what I was writing was what I wrote. Every everything I wrote was ahead of what could be done effects wise. Interesting, you know. I, I mean, I, I wrote transitions uh, in Initiation of Sarah. My original, my original draft was the 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 evil sorority cast a spell. No, some somehow I had the sorority girls being changed into barnyard animals. <laughs> and ABC immediately thought I was mad and replaced <laughs> me because there was no way that it could be done. Of course, it was done very, very shortly thereafter, brilliantly, by an American werewolf in London. Right. And But the, the lead of that was Joe Dante's uh, howling. And so you could, you could, but I was... I was still a year, I was still trying, I was writing still a year or two ahead of what was possible right. in terms of effects. And then during the 70s or the 80s, well, actually, I think it was 70s with Dick Smith, which paved the way for the 80s. And then you had people like Steve Johnson and Tom Savini rising Dick, up. Dick Smith changed the business with The Exorcist, yeah. which was just jaw-droppingly brilliant because we'd never, everyone, they, we'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. And I also ended up doing Dick Smith's last project, which was Thinner. Oh, that's right. Dick he Smith concept- was on that. I forgot that was his last project. That. 
and his his uh, his uh, follower, who's won two Academy Awards, Rick Baker. No, Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, um, Canham, Greg Canham, and Greg Canham, and Greg Canham ended up being the one who did the effects, but he did them off of Dick Smith's drawings and conceptions. Okay. I don't know if Greg would agree with that or not, but you know, <laughs> but so I, so I, so I did meet Dick at the very end. Right. He was a lovely, lovely man. Yeah. He seems like he was. Well, how did you teach yourself to write? Well, if there were no schools or anything like that, I never, I never went to one. They, they developed them during the time of my career. By the time I did psycho two, that was all, and with Lucas, that was all USC. Mm-hmm. And that was with Richard Franklin, who was in the class with, uh, oh, God, with uh, Greece, the director of Greece. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. Uh, I think I think Richard produced for him uh, Blue Bayou, Blue, the one, the, the uh, anyway, there was a period there late 70s, very early 80s, where the people coming out of USC film school were, you know, really important. And I also must have started in the 70s because in 73 I spent a year at the third class of AFI Mm -hmm. at Greystone, which was the Doheny Mansion. And... That was, I know, I remember Caleb Dachanel was in that class, but you had people like uh, uh, Fritz Lang come in to speak. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I mean, really. And he was mean. <laughs> was he? <laughs> yeah. And then you had the brilliant director, George Stevens, who came in with his entire crew. He came in, you could, yeah, he was like, even though he, he wasn't working. His, his first assistant, his second assistant, wow. first AD, they all came in with him for the like seven or eight guys so cool. when he spoke. Yeah, it was, but the, that was sort of the, I guess you could say sort of was the end. There was a period there when the classical filmmaking group, the older guys were still mixing in with the younger guys. Mm-hmm. And it was there was a sort of a, the transition going on. And I think that that was... That would be very, very early 70s. Okay. And I really, so I started working in 77. Beast Within was the first one produced as a feature film. And I wrote that in 79. How did I learn to write? I, there are only two, you know, finally, there are only two ways to learn how to write and or direct. And that's, if, as far as writing, it's read and write. Yeah. And as far as directing, it's watch film and direct, and there's no longer any excuse because you can use your iPhone. Right. But when I came in, it was almost impossible to even direct a short because it was prohibitively expensive. Yeah. You had to have the huge lights. You had to have film. You had to, you know, you know, you had to process the film, develop it. I mean, it was, it was, it was. You go get short ends, you know, you know. Whatever right. was left over from, you know, from 16 Miller from 35. But at the same time, it was glorious. Anyway, the 
I don't know. I, I, I kept writing scripts and getting rejected. But every time I wrote, I got better. And I have a, I, I don't know, I have a, I know film. Yeah. I, I know how to cut. I, I know where you should cut, where you should dissolve. You know, I know, I know how long they should be. I, I have a sense of narrative, which is very, very rare. The uh, most directors, even back then, they came from, they got in two, two ways. You got in through writing and you got in through directing commercials. Mm, okay. And so if you then, and I'm sure even now, those who came in from directing commercials or, 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 or you know, or, or industrial films or mm-hmm. whatever, they were very visual. Hmm. But it didn't mean that they knew anything about actors. Didn't you work in advertising at one point? Yeah, I, 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 I've done over 200 commercials. Oh, wow. Easily. I never stopped doing commercials. I started doing my first one was 1962, maybe. I mean, I've been a member of SAG since 1962. So were you do was that kind of a day job at one point working at an advertising agency? I worked agency? in front of the camera and I worked behind the camera. And I worked for advertising agencies. You know, you know, I was a location scout, I was a grip, I was an electrician, mm-hmm. I directed. So you, you did know, all of these different jobs. So I about did, the time. So I got but it was commercials because the the, the the it was then it may still be I still know people who make a lot of money at it, but it it it's it's advertising is still the way to make a living and work all the time, and you can also make a lot of money if you get to the like everything else if you get to the top, but alongside of film. But what was happening was. I felt like if I just kept on doing that, I would be a commercial director for the rest of my life. I found it very, very hard to cross over and to break into Hollywood out of that. Was there a moment where you realized you had to kind of quit your advertising yeah, I was job? Doing, I was doing very cheap Mattel commercials, shooting them at playgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I forget the circumstances now, but I, I just, there was, there was, we were doing that for next to nothing. And there was a volume business grinding out toy commercials. And I thought, well, this isn't going to work. And directors, commercial directors around me were trying to break into Hollywood and having very, very little luck. And I don't know why I I decided to write even more. I'd already been writing, but I really went at it. And writing is writing is very difficult because it's a lonely art. Right. And a lot of people can't deal with that. The uh, whereas directing is 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 a social activity. Mm-hmm. You're surrounded with with a lot of people, right? And that makes it. Uh, I've always thought directing was easier than writing. Than, than writing, yeah. I mean, the people who got the glory, of course, are the directors, right? But until you know the terror of a blank page, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, yeah. So my respect has always been for the writers. Yeah, now rightfully so. I remember hearing you at one point say, or speaking to the importance of surrounding yourself with friends on a set, where because when the chips are down, you're going to want to have somebody who has your back. There's always, you always come to the moment where you need one more shot, 
and you're out of time. And it's always there. And you always get to the point, especially towards the end of the shoot, where you're running out of money, you need more, and you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. And if you're working with studios, it's also the point where they want you to cut. They want you to, to, to finish it off and close it up. That happened in, especially badly in Child's Play, where there were UA were just coming on. They came down on me and said, well, cut the doll. And I said, no, Chucky, no third act. Mm. You know, which is where, of course, it was loaded with the doll in the yeah. third act. But that's how, that's when it really helps to be working with people who support you. And mean? yes, and if you can if you can build a working company around yourself, especially first AD, DP, and editor, it is enormously helpful because the pressure is always on. And if the film doesn't work immediately in the first preview, the dogs will be tearing at you and doing everything they can to destroy your work. So that again is when you need to be to really have a, a an editor that that you know is, is a right fit for you because the pressure will come down. Right. And you know, so there's a, there's, there's there's huge pressure on it. And the more the more money involved, the greater the pressure. Right. And of course, their jobs are on the line too. Yeah. And it's it's what Goldman said, nobody knows nothing in Hollywood, <laughs> and it's true. But, you know, everybody's trying to save their job and everybody's trying to be a hero. And nobody knows what the right way is. Right. And sometimes you don't know what the right way is. So it really helps to have a vision. Mm-hmm. You better damn well know what you want before you start shooting, you know, or you're going to run into trouble given all the, the 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 traps along the way. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's not easy. It doesn't sound like it is, but I mean, the idea of having friends around seems like that helps just make well, it's it. People, it's people you you've worked with before and that you trust. Yes, because the 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 if your editor's not secure. He'll start to stab you in the back. Oh, you want that cut? He says to the executive. And then he'll cut it. He'll try to get you to cut it, you know. And if your first AD isn't really solid and a friend, when the pressure comes down on uh, you're out of time, they'll go to the first AD and say, well, get him to cut this or get him to cut that. You know, they're all this. It just gets terribly political. And then it depends on how strongly how good your relationship is with your producer. And I don't mean the line producer. I mean the one who made the deal. Right. Because they can shield you from a lot. But they're always looking for the next job. Mm-hmm. So they, the last thing they want to do is piss off the studio executive. Right. Because that's the person that's going to give them the next picture. I mean, so, it, 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 so it's just extremely difficult. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're one of the few. You can have, what you have is runs in Hollywood. You'll have... You'll be hot, and by hot I mean that your taste will match with the zeitgeist of the audience at that moment in time. And you'll have a run of three or four pictures that are money makers, and you'll think you're God. And then you'll do a you'll do a bomb or a stinker, and it starts to you know. Right. Then, in other words, you can have a, you can run hot and cold. There are very very few people like John Frankenheimer that had a thirty year run. 
you know, mostly I would say looking around at what's happened, what I've seen in my lifetime, it's, it's a 10 to 12 year run. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very, very hard. And I, I had, uh, I had a wonderful production manager, uh, production designer on Fright Night, who also went with me in the conception of uh, Child's Play. And that was John DeCure Sr. and his son, Jr., John Jr. They had done Ghostbusters. Okay. Okay. As well as John Sr. had also done Cleopatra and King and I and wow. Agony and the Ecstasy. I mean, you know, he was one of the four or five greats. But he said, I said, how... He'd done a picture that was terrible, and it was with who directed uh, Carol Reed, who directed one of the great movies, The Third Man, mm-hmm. and and then he did. I think he did the Agony and the Ecstasy, which I remember as being a being a lumbering, you know, richly produced movie, but you know, but without any. There was no fire in it. Mm. And I asked John, because he worked with everybody, why that happened. And he said what happens is that people, and he was speaking about directors, become successful. And then they get trapped in their success. And they're no longer mixing with real people. Interesting. Yeah, and that happens to you for a decade, and you start to lose touch with the audience. So when you get super famous as a director, you're up in your mansion, you're not in touch with the zeitgeist and your feet aren't on the ground and in, on the pulse of what's yeah, happening. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a real danger. So it's, it's, it's not a matter of, I guess it's a matter of fashion, but you know, you can, fashion, yes, but fashion changes. Yeah. What doesn't change is the human being. What doesn't change is what we all want and what we're all afraid of. And the, 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 the simplest boiling down I ever heard was off of a man who really did teach me a lot about writing named Stuart Stern. And Stuart wrote a little screenplay called Rebel Without a Cause. Oh, that's right. Yeah, as well as Sybil, as well as The Only American and blah, blah, blah. But Stuart said, all motivations the hero and the protagonist and everybody in your screenplay can be, can be boiled down to one thing, love. We all want love. We all want to love and be loved. And I've always remembered that. You know, he also said, and he said, once you're talented, you're always talented, but it sure can hide for a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's great advice. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like we're in a time right now when there's a real nostalgia for the 80s and as one of the premier- been going on for a while. Yeah. What yeah. do you think it is about that time period that was so magical and why do you think people are pining for it so heavily right now? Boy. Well, I don't know. You know about the word. This is, we're in the 2019 now approaching 2020. Uh, you know about Scorsese and the rest, you know, saying that the Cape Crusader movies, Marvel, has just wrecked the business. Right. There's a lot of truth to that. Uh, but what's happened is that, I don't know how you can put it, we're once again in a, in a, in a period of huge transition. It seems to me common culture rinses and washes in and out about every three to four years. 
Mm-hmm. Used to be every five, six. Used to be every seven, eight. It gets shorter and shorter and shorter because of you know because of the internet now and constant information and news. Uh, you're going to streaming. You're not only going to streaming. Katzenberg is setting up Quibi or whatever it's called, which are like eight minute bites on a cell phone. Yeah. So you're even losing the screen. You're losing. It's going to come down to your cell phone. The other that was so and so. There's so a huge technological change. The 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 eighties. Everything was in camera, which I certainly prefer. That's me. But yes, but at the same time, we're here on the edge of 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 of, of a very exciting time. There's something called Unreal Engine out there. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of that? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you look at that stuff. I mean, my God, every it's not green screen. It's uh, having LED screens, and they project it so you can create it. You can use, a, a, you can shoot up location, and have foreground objects that are real for the actors to deal with. Right. And everything around them, the walls, the, the space, outside, inside, are all they're all plates projected on an LED screen. And then you can take and put into that environment everything from big robots to Tinkerbell. <laughs> you know, and 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 you can color grade right. instantly in there. So I mean, you know, and that's that's too good not to use at the same time. So it's a mix. But I will say something about the Marvel movies. The audience is now international. For years, when I came in, something like seventy-five percent was North America, right? Twenty-five percent foreign. Now it's damn near switched. Wow. You know, I mean, it's huge what your international market is. It's the same, and the same dynamic holds true for the product that held true for the networks. Mm-hmm. When there are only three networks, the bigger your audience, the more homogenized right. the product has to be. So essentially, the more money it makes, the more boring it has to become. Scary. And that's that's catching up with all the Marvel movies. But then you take something like the Joker, which is really, once again, we're back to humanistic stories mm-hmm. of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right. Because you're telling the story of, you know, you, they can say it's Travis Bickle. They can mm-hmm. say it's the guy from, you know, comedy. But it, it's, once again, it's a story of a, it's a human story. Right. Yes, it's violent. Yes, it's it's a downer, blah, blah, blah. But once again, you're looking at a terrific acting uh, actor working. Mm-hmm. That isn't a guy flying through the air and and, and, and and going into a huge CGI showdown right. at the end. That's what I thought was so brilliant about DC's doing that was they've realized people want these more human stories. They didn't realize it. It was, it was inadvertent. It was a, it was a director coming in with a vision hmm. with enough power. Believe me, this, I don't even, I don't know, Yeah, but I'm sure the studio was having a heart attack when they read the script. <laughs> the, but I mean, if you, if you hadn't had that actor, Joaquin Phoenix giving that performance, you know, I mean, a lot of things had to go right. And it's a yeah. very unpleasant film mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But the but it's 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 a character oriented about a character from the Marvel universe. I mean, how so? Somebody figured out how to take it back 
where you're looking at at acting, you're looking at character. You're not looking at a bunch of a bunch of mass people doing things with hammers and things. Right. I mean, so, so I mean, it, it may or may not swing again. I don't know, but I do know you can't keep making the same movie again and again and expect to keep selling it. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that because they're interested in worldwide grosses at the same time. Now, I forget how much China's worth, but I mean, you can feel you can feel everybody kissing China's ass, right? And that's a horrible mistake too. So interesting times, but I don't believe, even as as Disney turns into ABC, NBC, CBS from 1968, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's they're not going to be able to keep it going because the audience will demand will demand more variety, more change, pushing borders. I don't know what. Yeah. But it, 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 you know, character is one way to go, and certainly something that I love. But because I've I've been trying to mix character and look, a movie is only you're only as scared. You can only be scared if you care about the people involved in the movie. Yeah. In order to to be scared about what's going to happen to somebody in a movie, you have to care about them. The simplest way of putting that is you have to like them. Mm-hmm. But forgetting about like, you have to understand them. Mm. And they have to be going through emotional struggles that you can relate to. And we're all afraid of failure. We're all afraid we're unattractive. We're all afraid that we're insecure. We're not going to be able to come up with the goods when the, when it's called upon. You know, we, we, we all think that we're too fat, you know. Right. I mean, but if you can't get to those things that are recognizable for everybody in an audience, then they're not going to care. I'm not talking about somebody having to be good or goody two shoes. Right. They have to their their emotional travails have to be ones that that we can all recognize. But everybody wants to be in a relationship that's rewarding. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to be able to be affectionate. Yeah, and to have some and and to have somebody be affectionate with you. And I feel like horror directors who understand that, who can create compelling characters and then put them in peril, that horror is way more effective. Way, way, way more effective. And that's not a matter of of me being, you know, being old fashioned or anything. It's just this. It's what the audience wants. Yeah, the audience. You wouldn't be getting the reaction of the Joker that you're getting unless the audience felt sorry for him on some visceral level mm-hmm. unless the audience was sympathizing with him. Right. You know, they have to be involved somehow. Mm-hmm. And so when you pull that trick off, that's when you're really, really good. Yeah. So, you know, so, it, but right now, I, you know, we're, we're in the time of a mass market and the mass market homogenizes. Well, horror seems to be doing better than it's ever done. Horror is exploding. I mean, I could go on and on, but that would be another hour. <laughs> the, the the yes, horror is exploding. You can look at you can look at that that what last night was Halloween. I mean, they spent over a billion dollars. My wife told me on costumes for their pets. Oh my God! To take out trick or treating. <laughs> you know, have you seen that Chucky costume on a on the yep, dog on the, that went the viral? Do- yeah, it was adorable. Well, I mean, if I only knew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I mean, yes. Now the downside is that uh, that Halloween now is Halloween as big as Christmas now. Would you say? In terms of the the money that it generates, or the or the the attention, or whatever, I'd say it's getting there. It's probably you think it's getting, getting there. there? Okay, well now think of it this way: that means Halloween, which I guess is like the birth of Satan, 
is almost competitive with the birth of Christ. <laughs> think of that. Wow. What does that what say? What does that about? say about what's going on? Oh, wow. I never thought of it that way. Well, I mean, you're, you're, look, you're looking at a postmodern society with the birth, with the death of God. Right. You know, I don't know where that, I don't know where that, where that ends, but I mean, you can, you can, you can feel, you can feel the, 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 you can feel evil and repression yeah. growing around us. And what they always say is, well, horror reflects whatever's going on in society. Yeah, exactly. And it's cheap enough to produce that, therefore, it's more responsive to, 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 to what's going on. They'll take a chance in a horror film that may say things that, that they don't want to, that, that, that the, the corporations don't want to have said. Mm-hmm. But maybe you can slip it through. Right. You can't do that with a hundred fifty million dollar, you know, Cape Crusader movie. Not quite. You know, the, the more the, the safer they have to get, the more base, boring the content has to become, the more homogenized. We're so coming. you grew when you were coming up as a director. You, a lot of your contemporaries were people like John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and Mick Garris and Wes Craven. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned from those other directors that you were able to bring into your own directing? Well, oddly enough, I didn't really know very many other directors. Okay. I mean, it, it, we, we directors then stayed siloed in their own silo pretty much. Mm-hmm. What brought a lot of us together was because of Mix Garris's Masters of Horror. Right. And that was the first time that I really meant a large number of directors. I mean, I knew Wes Craven, I knew this one or that one or Mick or, mm-hmm. or, uh, or Toby or whoever, but I didn't really know them until we started to socialize in those Masters of Horror dinners. And I will be eternally grateful to Mick. I made a, a lot of friends, Casarelli, I could, all of them. I just think they're great. The, and I became very close to, 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 to Toby, actually, too. And then he turned around and died. But I mean, you know, I mean, I learned a lot about people. Uh, uh, David Scow got me together with uh, Nicotero. Uh, Howard Berger was an assistant puppeteer on Child's Play. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, and that sort of happens to you, but I didn't really, you don't really get to know people until you break, break bread with them. Yeah, you of know? course. And that really came out of through, through the office, through mix auspices. That's great. And I don't know if I learned anything, but I learned a lot about the struggles other directors had gone through. Mm. And I think up until there, I felt pretty alone, but I'm not just a director. I'm a writer director, yeah. which is which is more rare, actually. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean... I I I I I certainly looked at all their movies. Yeah, I knew what everybody was doing. Mm-hmm. I did that as a matter of course. And there were people that I admired more than others, and then people I wasn't admiring would have a breakthrough film, which would blow me away. And yeah, you know, I mean, I, I have stories that go on and on. <laughs> I would say we were shooting Psycho Two. I I rode up with Richard Franklin to look at the set of Walter Hill's Streets of Fire. Mm-hmm. And it was the largest set ever built under a tarpaulin to do day for night. Oh wow! It's a huge city street, 
and they you, you'd roll the, the tarp across, the, the, the netting across the top of it, and they could shoot in the day for night. It was just a phenomenal set. This is on Universal. And on the way up, we stopped in the electric cart, and we talked to Brian De Palma, who was in absolute despair. Why? He'd had the biggest failure of his life. And it Bonfire was, of the Vanities? No, before that. Say hello to my little friend. That was a bomb? When it first Scarface? came out. And then, I mean, the reviews were savage. And then also at the same time, we, sh- we shot the, 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 the cinematographer on, uh, on uh, Psycho 2 was the great Prince of Darkness who shot for, for Carpenter. And he was in despair because he'd done this movie with John they thought was great. And it had been savage and hadn't opened and had died a horrible death Oof. financially called The Thing. Right. Okay. I mean, so, I mean, I've, so I've seen, I've seen people do brilliant work and have the critics savage it. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde is an example of that. Mm-hmm. They pulled it after the reviews. And Warren Beatty, was, I, I met him. She said, this was back when I was just really struggling, but I met Warren at a social gathering, and he was in despair about that. And I think the, uh, I think the female reviewer who lived like a Martha's Vineyard gave it a review and resuscitated it, but that was savaged by the critics mm. and destroyed. And then it got a rebirth, and it became one of the quintessential films of that era. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, what, I think that what I'm saying is, so just what William Goldman said, nobody knows anything, <laughs> you know, and you can have films that, that, that don't open and that, 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 that die horrible deaths financially. Yeah. But then are discovered. Right. Several years later or 10 years later. Or movies that open good and stay classics well, like Fright Night well, and that, Child's Play. Well, yeah, you know, but I mean, when I was doing a lot of this stuff, movies were disposable. Yeah. We never thought that they would come back. We never thought that they'd be sequelized or remade. Right. If I had, I would have really done my deals very, very differently. Yeah, I can imagine. I hated, I've hated the remakes of all my films. I'm trying to think of one that I've liked and I'm hard pressed. <laughs> the uh, Not that anybody asked me, but you know, but you know, it's just, it all changes and yet it doesn't in some ways. Hmm. The... But anyway, I think we're at a, I think we're at a very very exciting time technologically, and I think it's more. I think the censorship is is growing worse than ever. Yeah. In terms of what you can do and what you can say. That's a so. The, the, so the 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 the, the, the you're, you're you're constantly being pushed to, to flatten the goddamn movie. Right. So it's terrible. It's terrible and it's wonderful. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Right. Well, and luckily, that, that's Charles Dick is like an 18 something. <laughs> Tom, I, re- I really, really appreciate this. This was a tremendous honor to be able to speak to you. Oh, well, thank you. I hope you're in. I hope you, I hope the audience out there enjoys it. And to all you young filmmakers out there or old filmmakers, for that matter, keep on directing, keep on making it. Every time you go out and you try to put together a film or a short, you're going to learn something. And the more you learn, the better you will get. And someday somebody will notice. And don't give up the day job. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. 
All right. Really loved having that conversation with Tom. So as always, here's a summary of key insights from this conversation with Tom Holland. Number one, it all comes down to love. All intentions from heroes to protagonists to antagonists are all motivated by love of one kind or another. This is what makes a compelling, relatable, and enduring narrative because it stems from the base psychology of human beings. This was a piece of advice given to Tom by the late Stuart Stern. Stuart Stern was the screenwriter for Rebel Without a Cause. And when you think about this principle, it's the truth. All of the characters in Fright Night crave love in one way or another, which is partially what gives that movie such emotional poignancy and partially what makes it endure so well today, nearly 30 years after its release. So observe and acknowledge the love-based motivations of your characters when you're writing or directing to really get to their human truth. Number two, quality is everything. When Tom was approached to write the screenplay for Psycho 2, it was originally intended to be a made-for-TV movie with a new actor playing Norman Bates. Tom, meanwhile, really had his heart set on having Anthony Perkins return to the role of Norman Bates, so he did everything in his power to write something so high quality that he would draw Perkins to the project. Tom worked tirelessly on Psycho 2, and in the end, not only did the script attract Anthony Perkins back to the role, but the movie ended up getting a theatrical release. Here, Tom took a project with little commercial potential and turned it into something bigger, and a snowball effect ensued, all because of the quality of his script. Movies begin and end with the writing, and if your script is good enough, you can move mountains. The quality of your script is the best investment in your project's most valuable source of equity. Number three, surround yourself with friends. Tom has spoken about how in a ruthless business like Hollywood, you really need to surround yourself with people you can rely on when the chips are down. The studio systems can be very cutthroat. Executives can turn on you, and so can key members of your crew, which can then turn your production into a nightmare, or even worse, bring it to a complete halt. Because of this, it's priceless to find loyalty amongst your key crew members, like your DP, your AD, and your EP. Tom then went on to say that the best way to get loyalty is to be loyal. So nourish your relationships with your crew, because if you have their back when they need you, chances are they'll have your back when you need them. Anyway, guys, thank you again, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on the social medias. If you want to follow the show on Instagram, check it out at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor or on Twitter at the exact same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care.